Hey guys, welcome to the Higher Points, and we've got a special guest on today. Uh, we've got Melissa from South Bend Industrial Hemp here. We're just going to start off, uh, we want to hear a little bit about you, like some of your background, where'd you grow up, that kind of stuff. So, Okay, so yes, Melissa Nelson, South Bend Industrial Hemp. I am originally from Holton, Kansas, that's where I grew up. Very active in all the sports, FFA, student council. If there was a club, I was in it. And 4-H, I was probably leading it. My mom was very big into volunteering, public speaking, etc. And at the time, I was like, wow, when am I ever going to speak in front of so many people? And thankfully, she pushed us pretty hard in that because I do a lot of public speaking now. But uh, representing the hemp industry. Went to school at Johnson County, played basketball there. Transferred out to Fort Hayes, played basketball there. Went to work as a crop research scientist in Larned and then traveled and did some research work in Australia on <sighs> just contract research. Came back, got my master's degree while working at Diamond Dag still. Opened my own research facility, performance crop research. Uh, I work with uh, dozens of different crops every year on developmental chemicals, new varieties, genetic testing, etc. I'm the step before it gets submitted to the EPA, so I'm that data collection point. And then during that time, we also launched, along with my husband and my brother-in-law, South Bend Industrial Hemp. We started as growers on the CBD, but our main focus was fiber and grain because they're fourth-generation farmers, so we love big ag, large-scale agriculture. Yeah, it just kind of evolved from there. Um, Our CBD buyer fell through, so we integrated on the CBD side and have a retail line, and then we continued growing for fiber and grain. Our buyer fell through there as well. So we started punching the numbers. We had farmers that were interested in growing. We had manufacturers that were looking for our product. So we decided to start a processing facility as well. So in a nutshell, that's me. <laughs> that's been, uh, I feel like you've said that a lot of times. That <laughs> It's pretty smooth, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. really going to enjoy editing this podcast because there were no ums, uhs, likes, or anything in all of that. <laughs> I'm just going to be like listening going, this is beautiful. I don't have to stop it. I don't have to highlight. I don't have to do anything. Don't jinx me. Don't jinx me. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No pressure whatsoever. Um, I just like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll do my best. So you've you've always been uh, involved in farming in one way or another, or yes. So growing up, uh, my parents had eighty acres. We were, had cattle. Uh, did a lot of show cattle. Horse judging was kind of our thing. Um, I used to do barrels and poles and all that. And then my horse uh, retired and transferred out of that. So instead of training a new horse, I really dove deep into the horse judging side of things. Could have went to the collegiate level and judged at K State, but. Really decided basketball was more my avenue, and it got my school paid for. It was farming something you always wanted to do for a career, or was that just something that kind of came up? Or? Just kind of fell into it. I was at Fort Hayes. I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. I had applied to PT school, went through all the interviews and everything, had an internship before my senior year, and absolutely hated it. I was inside all summer. <laughs> I went back to my advisor at Fort Hayes and I said, what am I the closest to graduating with? I don't want to do this anymore. And she said, biology. Okay, great. So I go to the career fair and I'm, you know, walking around with my resume, just like, who wants me? I have no idea what I want to do in life. And this research facility um, picked me up and I said, well, I've, I've never grown crops like that. Like my parents are into cattle and pasture and hay and brome, et cetera. And they said, oh, we can teach you how to farm. We want you for your science background. So I gave it a shot. Absolutely fell in love with it. I love diversification. I love farming. I love the challenges. It's just such a neat community to be a part of. Yeah, I've been taking a look at your Instagram and your Facebook and your YouTube and everything. And you can definitely tell it's not something that is uh, 
a forced thing for you. It's definitely something that's like you really feel to your core as far as it's it's in your blood I kind of thing. I love it. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I love representing the people. I love just giving a voice to farmers because most of them are not super big on social media. They they laugh because I always have my camera out and I'm always just yeah. doing my thing or going live and they just think I'm hilarious when I'm walking around the field and I've got my well, phone up. When I was watching your video of you with the uh, the surprise inspection from the fire marshal, <laughs> you know, like you had the video and you're like talking and everything and I think it was your husband, is that who was in the video with you? Mm-hmm. You know, it was almost like, oh yeah, he's here. Yeah. And like, and then he was just kind of like standing there like, okay, like you <laughs> go ahead and better. do all the talking. They've gotten better, but they do know like I'm very big on candid shots and so... They're never safe. They are never safe from my camera because I am always taking pictures. Well, and always in like they're like laying in inside of machines working exactly. on them or whatever. You know, you could definitely get some interesting photos if you wanted to. Oh, yeah. Corbett was here. Today's Wednesday. He was last thir- Friday and Saturday. And I posted pictures, you know, just complimenting him because he, you know, he owns the company and he still comes out and helps us with customer service. And. He goes, I didn't even know you were taking pictures. And I said, yeah, I'm sneaky like that. <laughs> well, that's actually probably the better way to do it, too. You know, oh, absolutely. Probably more, more organic organic that way. So I just share my life. Um, I think that's the coolest part about my social media posts is I literally plan nothing. Uh, I just post what speaks to me that day or maybe something that caught my attention that day or, you know, whatever activity that we're doing on the farm or my research company or the hemp company. Like I'm just sharing ag, which I absolutely love. I think that's what uh, people really enjoy that. They like to see that realness and that kind of thing to be able to relate and see into other people's lives. So, Oh, and we're not a highlight reel. Like the days that suck, I post that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not always fun to highlight your mistakes or, your, you know, your failures, but people believe in you and they know you're genuine when you when you're willing to put yourself out there. So if, if someone else can like learn from that mistake, you know, that's helping someone out so. oh absolutely you know farming's hard enough as it is mother nature does her job so there's no reason why i shouldn't try to curtail any any failures that could come well and it's i think there's also a misconception in our society when everybody looks at social media and you always see like everybody's like sipping my ties on a beach and that's not that's not what everybody's doing at all times so i think it's good to give that full picture and also to see to get that appreciation for what's going on because i feel like a lot of that's missing i mean i haven't I'm I'm a city boy. I grew up in a city and, you know, so I had my only exposure to farming is, you know, driving a semi with grain to the elevator. That's it. And so anything in between there? No, none of it. I don't understand it. So it's interesting to see and give a good appreciation of the entire well-rounded, you know, process. Well, what really struck me was Kids Act <clears throat> Day in Barton County is a huge thing. It's been going on for nearly 30 years. They bring fourth graders out to the farm. They teach them about animals, sprayers, etc., where their food comes from. And, you know, Barton's a pretty rural community, a really pretty rural county. So they asked me to do a little talk for one of the groups. So I was thinking I could talk, even with fourth graders, a little higher level of agriculture. But even kids that grow up in a rural community have no idea where their food is coming from. They have no idea how agriculture works because it just shows up for them. And so... That was an eye-opening experience for me as to just sharing the basics or things that I don't even think would be interesting to people. People are fascinated with because they don't see it in their day-to-day life. So Yeah, it's something you take for granted. Kind of like breathing oxygen. Or, you know, people have no idea that their corn is in toothpaste. It's in it's everywhere. It's in their fuel. They 
they have no idea. And so just highlighting that and helping dispel some of the myths about genetics and chemical use and just agriculture as a whole gets so demonized and it, you have to have it. So, so is that your, your goal? Do you want to see hemp and your toothpaste and your fuel and all that good stuff? I think this is where some of the hempsters and I uh, maybe disagree a little bit. You know, people are like, hemp can save the world. Hemp's going to save the world. Hemp should be everywhere. I think hemp should be a supplement to all the things that are out there. There is nothing wrong with soybeans. There's nothing wrong with soybean meal. There's nothing wrong with using corn as ethanol and your, and your you know, gasoline, etc. Like hemp should supplement. Hemp should, you know, bring options to the consumers, but it shouldn't sit there and take away from any other crop. That makes like, sense. Yes, it's going to convert acres, and I understand that, uh, but it's also going to help drive the price up for other crops as well. Because if you reduce those acres, the demands or the supply is going to go down. So, what did you learn at your first job? Like, what was that that kind of helped propel you, I guess, to where you are now? Yeah. So, my job at Diamond Ag Research was to be the GLP residue manager. So, I worked with soil safety, plant safety, plant health. Um, I took residue tissue samples at times of harvest. So whether that be forage, when cattle would typically eat hay, which you obviously when cattle, you bale and you feed to animals and then grain and then stover because that gets baled as well. I was taking samples, sending those to the lab and they were looking at residue levels of pesticides up to the billionth place to show that by the time it gets to the commercial market, whether that be for animal or human consumption, it's safe. So that was my job for a while. Um, I also helped with the GMO program. So new genetics coming down the line, like your dicamba soybeans. Roundup ready corn was before my time, but that would be something that we would look at. Drought tolerant wheat, you know, any genetic modification in those varieties and then them testing it out on the the soil is is what I was doing. So what did you do after that? Like what was the next step there? Getting my master's degree and then launching my own company. Okay. So that's what I did. That you you make that sound like significantly easier than it likely was. <laughs> you know, I sweat a lot. I'm not going to lie because it was a very big, big jump. Like I knew I was very good at my job. Uh, just I, I was very confident in my capabilities and I was hoping that my work would speak for itself. Um, so I when I left Diamond Ag, I left with no customers from there. I really just tried to you know make a clean break and my work spoke for itself and we've been filling clients ever since. Cool. So what, uh, what did you get your master's degree in? Agriculture from Colorado state. And they let me do it online, thankfully, because I was already working in the field that I wanted to be in. And that's kind of why I specifically looked at Colorado state's program is because it was online. And then they let me waive the internship because I was already working where I wanted to work. So made that a little bit easier. I wouldn't say easier because I was a full-time farmer, <laughs> you know, researcher. I'm, well, rather I'm, than having to pick up shop and move out there or whatever and do the internship or something. I couldn't have done that. Yeah. I mean. Were you married at that time? No. I took a long time to get on the whole marriage wagon train. Uh, Aaron and I Nothing have been. wrong with that. <laughs> Aaron, Aaron and I have been together since 2014 and we got married in December of 18. It just took me, you know, I, I really, I loved traveling Australia. You know, I knew I wanted to, to be with him, but I didn't really, you know, I was like, well, the government doesn't have to 
sign a piece of paper or we're together it is what it is I, i've said the same thing to my wife if it's any consolation <laughs> oh, yeah. it's like it doesn't matter we're, we're doing everything that a married couple does like literally everything we just don't have the paper yeah so you know my mind changed and we're, we're married now but that's it took me a while so you talked about getting your master's degree and then had you always known you wanted to ha- have your own company? Was that always something you wanted to do or? No, if you would have talked to me 10 years ago, uh, I would have been about, cause I'm extremely competitive. Like I can't play board games. I'm not very fun at family game night because I have to win. Like I win at everything. This reminds me of my last <laughs> game all night. So when you talked to me 10 years ago, I wanted to climb the corporate corporate ladder. I knew I probably wanted to be in agriculture or, you know, some, some area that competitiveness was part of the job. Like I love climbing the ladder, whether that be sports or, or whatnot. I never dreamed entrepreneurship would be the road that I take, but now looking at it, it's such an easy transition because I am so self-driven that I don't think I fit in the mold for many companies. And so I can just create my own. Yeah. Can I do it your own way? Versus the way they want you to do it. It's not really a do it the own way. I, I love collaborating on ideas, you know, because maybe some people have it better. I, I learned amazing things at my first job. I just always try to push myself uh, every day. I want to expand and grow in some area of my life. And sometimes that doesn't fit within certain job descriptions, which is, you know, not good or bad. It just is. And as an entrepreneur, I'm forced to grow. Like I encounter uncomfortable situations, whether that be in accounting or, you know, customer service, or maybe a trial comes in with a chemistry that I really don't know much about. So I've got to really dig and, and pull on my knowledge to, to push through that. Now that I'm getting big enough and I have employees like learning leadership and managing, managing expectations for them and me, like those are all areas that I get to grow in every day that I wouldn't have the opportunity if I worked for someone else. Do you find that the job is as far as understanding the farming and all that stuff is kind of the easy part and managing the people is the harder part. I'm an introvert by heart. So yes, managing people is much harder for me uh, because I have such high expectations. Uh, I really don't allow anything other than the highest quality. Like I just can't do that. And so it's taken a minute to allow the employees to really grow and develop themselves because that's so important and still meet the expectations that I I need. What made you choose the hemp industry as far as, you know, you said you'd always kind of done traditional or been a part of either cattle or traditional farming. What made you want to get into the hemp side of it? So I really have to credit that towards Aaron and Richard. They actually approached me from the farm side. In 2018, commodity prices were so low. We were looking for a way to diversify our farm. Originally, we had a specialty crop of teff grass, which is a warm season, high protein grass that we sent out to high end horse facilities in Colorado. That contract um, was complete and they were not going to grow teff anymore or they didn't need teff from us anymore. So we had an area with a low water output well and empty space to fill. So we knew we couldn't put corn on it. Hemp was coming to fruition in terms of state, like being legal, etc. So we looked into it. Um, you know, CBD was the hot market in 2019. While we wanted to try and grow that, that really wasn't something that we were super passionate about. I saw it more as a niche within my niche industry of research because I knew clients would want to test out fertilizer programs or uh, organic pesticides, etc. So that's why we pursued the, 
the CBD side of things. Also in that first year, we put in 80 acres of dry land hemp, industrial hemp for fiber and grain. And so how is that, how's that grown from what you first, what you first went with to where it is now? Wow. Rapidly. Uh Right. (laughs) Yeah. So 2019, like I said, we lost uh, the contract at the end of the year for our biomass and to extract. So we. Was that a, did you have a contract in the state of Kansas or was that like Colorado? It was Colorado. Okay. And you know, it is what it is. People were, you know, we thought we, we thought we had it sealed in and that we were doing it the quote unquote right way. It didn't really work out that way. It wasn't worth more than the piece of paper that it was printed on. And that's... We went through the same thing. Yeah. I think a lot of hemp farmers, almost all of us did that first Yeah. So it was like, okay, well, here's a problem. Let's solve it. We can either sit on this, we can cry about it, or we can figure out a way to make some money from this. And long story short, I was like, why can't we make our own products? Because I was doing so much public education about CBD and the potentials of hemp and how just overall health and wellness. And people are like, what brands do you trust? And at that time, I really didn't have a brand that I could send to them. So I decided to make my own because then I knew exactly how it was made. So that's how our CBD is launched. And that continues on. We have downscaled our CBD grow, but we still use it a lot for educational purposes. 2020 rolled around. We put 55 acres underneath an irrigated pivot. So while we decreased the acres, we increased the land value that this hemp was grown on. We had an absolute beautiful crop. It was, you know, 12 to 14 feet tall. We started getting a lot of traction with PBS, with different magazines and uh, social media platforms. We had our first annual open house. We, like 200 people came out in July of 2020. That was right after the big mass mandate. And so we were all like, wow, either nobody's going to come or everybody's over this and it's going to be a great, great turnout. We had 200 people and then we did a fall field day so people could kind of see the harvesting methods as well. We rolled that into, into backtrack. We thought we had a contract for that as well. About 30 days before harvest, I called the guy. I said, hey, just confirming you want it in round bales. This is what you need, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, forgot to call you. We lost all our funding. I don't have a processing facility for you to take it to. And I said, were you going to tell me that? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, I've got a beautiful crop here. What do I do with it? And really, there was no infrastructure at that time for fiber and grain. So, again, we've got a problem. Let's find a solution. We had, like I said, farmers reaching out to us saying, hey, we would grow, but there's no place to take it. We had manufacturing manufacturing facilities calling us saying, Hey, where are you going to take this? Because we want it once it's processed. And I said, well, I don't have an answer. So we started doing the legwork, how much it was going to be. We started looking at decorticators. We met up with formation ag and Monta Vista. That's the company that we ended up moving forward with. We have their 660 fiber track. We put the down payment on it. December 1st of 2020, that machine turned on in June 1st of 2021 During that time, we kind of took a leap of faith and reached out to farmers, asking them to contract grow for our facility because we understood we didn't want to do it all on our farm by ourselves. We could have, but we understand that this industry is going to just expand so rapidly that soon our farm isn't going to meet the demand of our facility. So why not bring farmers up with us at a level that they feel comfortable, whether that be five acres or 500 acres, and then, you know, we can all rise together. 
forgive my n- misunderstanding, but what is a decorticator? What yeah. exactly is that? No, it's there's no misunderstanding. So basically, there's two parts to the fiber plant. There is the herd, which is, is aka bast, or I'm sorry, the fiber, which is the bast, which is the outside of the plant. And then you have the inside woody substance, which is the herd. In order for manufacturers to be able to utilize those, you have to separate them. So the 660 decorticator mechanically separates the fiber from the herd and then cleans it. Is that the video you were posting where you said, like, I wasn't supposed to show you this, but then this? Yeah. And there was, like, the little, um, like, shaker thing at the yeah. end that kind of separates the two out, and then one goes up a conveyor and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Like I said, I'm pretty dangerous with the camera, but I was, Formation Ag let us run around their shop for a couple days and learn how to run the machine with their guys. And I was like, well, I'm here. I'm sharing what we're doing. So, and I said, anything you don't want to be on camera. So, I just tried to. Well, another thing I think people and even I took for granted with them when I first met him and really started to kind of understand. And I guess I'm not I shouldn't say I understand it, but learn about this industry was people take for granted that you put a seed in the ground, you grow it, you you do this, you do all the things to it. And then you run a combine over it and you take it to the elevator. Whereas with this, it's completely different in the sense of aren't you guys kind of basically making some of your own yeah. machines and, and making it to where it works for hemp because let's face it you don't just go to John Deere and say hey I need this for that and then they bring it to you and That's you start the doing goal, your though. thing. So our focus and really in 2020 we were very mm-hmm. adamant about this. We are only using equipment that we already have on our farm. We are showing farmers that you know, like the CBD industry showed that you needed all this specialty things and the equipment and blah blah blah. We're showing that you can use equipment that you already have. It's more economical. It's scalable. It should be used in your crop rotation just like any other crop. Everything down to the plates that we're using, we already had for other crops. So so if there was a farmer listening to this podcast that maybe was interested in getting into that, what machinery would they use now? Like, And how, how would they do it? Because I was noticing, and again, I'm not, I don't understand this well, but it seemed like your combine was like lifted really high at one of them to where like it was getting more of the tops of the plants kind of cut off and then something else came behind. I don't know the machine and kind of yeah. chopped the stalks down and then kind of went from there. I mean, I'm probably butchering that a no, lot, but in a nutshell, that's exactly yeah. what we did. We raised the combine head all the way up. It goes six and a half feet. We came in, took the grain off of that. So your grain's going to go into your hopper in the combine, your flour and trash material is going to spit out the back. Then you're left with a stock. We come behind with a swather or a side sickle, lay that down and then just use a, every, a, baler that you would use for any other type of hay and bale it up after it's redded. So it's basically just a little bit of maybe a change in mindset versus a change in all of your equipment and everything you have to do. It's a timing thing, making it work within your operation. For us, hemp goes in first so we can harvest it first and then it can lay there and ret while we're harvesting other crops. You have to make it work within your operation. Otherwise, it's not going to be successful. Do you want to explain what redding is a little bit, that process? Yeah. So redding is when you lay it down and there is a layer between the herd and the fiber. It's essentially nature's glue. We call it pectin or that's the name of it is pectin. And so by having the dew cycles of moisture in the morning and at night, and then the heat during the day it basically is a natural degradation of that pectin layer. And so that way, when it comes to the processing facility, it separates easier and cleaner. And so I can give the farmer more because it's more efficient on my end at the processing facility. So what does, when it, when it finally makes it from the field to you, 
essentially what is kind of the process and then what it, where does it go, what's it get used for, and et cetera. If you can dream it, it's being used for it. Um, so once it comes to us, they come in round bales. We pay them just like hay. Uh, so it's based off of tonnage. We decorticate it, and then from there it gets sized and sorted. The, our medium-sized, we call it American Standard Industrial Hemp. That's our packaging label, et cetera. That, the medium size is going to go towards hempcrete or insulation. Uh, natural builders are loving our stuff and the size and the specs that we're hitting in terms of dust and cleanliness. So they're building whole houses from this stuff. Um, that's our biggest thing for the herd. Animal bedding is also very easy to hit with that size and spec. We service several horse barns that use our stuff because it is, again, dust-free. They're finding that horses are recovering better from standing on it. It's four times more absorbent. Uh, then the odors that you generally get are taken away because they are so absorbent. So that's some easy outlets for there. When you look at our fines, our American Standard fines, that's going towards spreadcrete, uh, bioplastics, you know, OCB board is the medium and the fines blended. If you name it, this they're trying to find a way to put hemp in that industry. Well, what was the picture that I'm sorry for interrupting you? What was the picture I saw on your Instagram? You made me th- think of this with like the, the coarseness. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember which one I saw it on. It was almost like a, a white powder almost in a bag that you were asking yeah. this, if somebody could ask. If, so that's if, micronized. Yeah. So that means it's under 200 microns. And what is it used? Like what's that used for? Just bioplastics. Okay. Uh, they actually have water bottles that can be degraded in 80 days once it hits the soil. You know, it can sh- sit on a, a shelf life for as long as regular plastic, petroleum plastic. But once it hits that soil, it's going to break down significantly faster. So people are looking to supplement hemp in their plastic lines. Hmm. But the big thing is, is you have to think about with these companies is they have to be able to hit the volume. Because they don't want to run hemp in their products for three months and then have to switch back. It's right. just, it's not going to work. Yeah. So, you know, chicken before the egg we've got to go in as farmers and then they've got to go in as manufacturers. And that's kind of what I take my job as a processor so seriously is because I'm trying to marry those two industries. We're asking farmers to produce more. We're asking manufacturers to go ahead and, you know, establish an escrow, make sure these farmers are getting paid. These farmers shouldn't have to take all the risk to make this successful. And how, how's that journey been? Are you, are you seeming to get uh, cooperation from both sides or mm-hmm. is there pushback at all? I think they're a little surprised, but at the end of the day, because there isn't a lot of volume, we can kind of set the rules, which is the first time that farmers have not been just price takers. You know, if you want those acres in the ground, then you're going to need to pay for it. And as a processor, hell or high water, I'm making sure my farmers are getting paid and taken care of. And I'm not going to assume that risk as a processor if no manufacturer is going to believe in themselves enough to put money in escrow or put money away, you know, we don't even have to touch it, but the farmers have to be able to get paid at the end of the season. Is it like a cheaper per bottle than, um, the, uh, why am I trying a blank? You just said the type of plastic petroleum, petroleum. Oh. I wanted to say poly, but I knew that wasn't right. Petroleum plastics or is it? No, right now it's just not cost effective. And that's kind of one of the things that you're seeing in all plastics that they're trying to replace this with is you have to be cost effective because the water bottles that are sitting in front of us right now, they're making for less than a penny. That's tough to beat when you're not at scale and at volume. What are some of the issues, I guess, that you've had to really 
navigate through all of this? Like, what are some big humps that you've had to get over and how did you navigate those? And All of them. (laughs) (laughs) Simple things that you didn't think about. When I was creating this, you know, you did SWAT, your strengths, weaknesses, things like that. And some challenges that I knew were going to be tough is insurance. So I volunteer for Barton County's Farm Bureau Board and I just kept you know, sharing on social media what we were doing, you know, tagging anytime that I was with Barton County or Barton County supported us as a, a grower. And I went to our insurance agent where we have our farm and our personal insurance. And I'm like, listen, I've got to give my money to somebody. Why not give it to Farm Bureau? And Farm Bureau has such an a intense pull, like at the national level. When Farm Bureau endorses something, things happen. And so I had the president of Farm Bureau come out and tour my facility twice. I did some educational things for them, really spoke to their groups, just again, doing education, showing what we're doing, taking time to educate. And I think the most, just, I was so grateful at the end of that tour, President Feltz came up to me and he said, I'll be honest, I was not really looking forward to this today, or, you know, I didn't think it was going to be like this you have completely changed my mind about the potential of hemp and what it can do for farmers. Done. Like in those, in those, you were like worth it. (laughs) Yes. I mean, when I do a tour, I only need to change one person's mind and I consider it a successful tour just to give you guys time. Like since June 1st, we've done 84, 84 tours. We average four tours a week. And so we're getting a reach of just people that are very interested. You know, you've got manufacturers, you've got the really technical people that are coming to look at our stuff. And then you just have homeschools and education and FFA groups that just want to learn, period. I treat both the same. Like both are equally important to me because you need all facets of the industries to cooperate, to work together. So in regards to challenges, insurance was a challenge. Shipping was a challenge. There's several carriers that won't carry us. We've gotten several terminals that have rejected our load, even though we look like wood chips uh, because we had hemp in our name. They sent us back. Yeah, it's, it's just a challenge. So if you hadn't had that in your name, do you think that you would have had the same issue? Maybe. I mean, we have to legally send the COA with everything that we do. So I'm sure somebody at the head office would have looked at our paperwork. And I think it'd be more sneaky, for lack of a better word, if you didn't use it in your name. Yeah. Uh, and then they found it. Then if we're just very upfront about what we're doing. And we found carriers that want to work with us. So I'm going to work with them. I'm going to give my money to them because they're supporting us. Right. Have you found like issues like, I don't know if you guys reach out and, like, sponsor, like, the college, this and that. Have you had any issues with, like, sponsorship and your logo and your name, that kind of stuff? Because um, it has hemp in it. No, people love it. And we don't put the leaf or anything like that in our brand. We're very just focused on American farms, American process. You know, we just love the country that we live in. So we've got the flag. Uh, we've got the IH logo. And that's we just try to stay away from the leaf. So what keeps you motivated through this? Because you, um, he was telling me the numbers because I was here with him when he was doing the um, uh, pr- uh, processor and uh, the grower grower's panel. panel. Mm-hmm. And so through through all of that, th- looking at those numbers, it started out with like several hundred and then now it's down to like, what you say, 80 as far as the growers were growers concerned? Something state. like that. Yeah, but if you look at the fiber growers, those are increasing. But um, what I was getting at, it was like even through all of those 
challenges and tribulations, what would, I guess, help keep you self-disciplined enough to do that? Is there, you know, some secret formula or is it just, you know, just something you felt again to your bones and just needed to get done one way or another? Again, this is an area that I may or may not disappoint the hamsters, but at the end of the day, I care about my farmers. If it was sesame seed that was the, that I was driving, whatever keeps my farmers doors open, my family, my friends, you know, my local community, those rural communities that are dying, whatever keeps those farms open, I'm going to push for it. And it just happened to be that hemp was the catalyst. Hemp was the the plant that really propelled this forward for us. So if I can give farmers another cash crop, if I can be that processing facility for them to go to, um, that's, that's what drives me. Have you had a lot of issues with finding machinery to be able to do the things that you need to get done or being able are you, are you finding stuff that you can use and then modify pretty easily? Our goal is not really to modify them at all. Okay. So, you know, when we plant, we would use high population Milo plates. I don't want to make specialty plates. That's just more work and more money. The only thing that the guys have made is a dryer for our seed. And again, we only use things on our farm. So we used a big grain bin fan and we used a 40 foot container, cut the bottom, welded in a false floor and then hooked up our, our grain So this bin. is the container I was hearing about from yeah, your dad. Yeah. They okay. inspired us for our dryer. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, farmers are some of the most ingenuitive and amazing people that I've ever met. That's what I love about Richard. I can give him a terrible idea that's in my head as is to what I want to come to life. And he goes to the parts store and makes it happen. And I really, he just does an amazing job at that. Well, one thing I think that was interesting that I haven't seen on a lot of other storefronts is you actually sell the seed itself too and like have recipes and everything that goes with it. But I was also amazed at how much like protein and stuff like that is in that as well as the omegas and the amino acids and stuff like that that you talk about. What to, How come more people, I guess, don't you don't really see the seeds much? Why is that uh, not something that's commonly seen? Because it's been so demonized <clears throat> over the years. You know, when you look at the propaganda and things throughout the last few decades, I legitimately get questions as people ask if they're going to get high by eating the seeds. And there's, you know, if there's no THC or CBD in there. No, you're not going to get high. But that's a legitimate concern. People with CDLs, they're like, wow, I can't have any THC in my system. It's just a lack of awareness as to what this plant can do besides CBD and THC. So you see it for more than just the like fiber side of it you see also see the health and medical benefit side too is that something that was that you were kind of focused on or just kind of well you said that you had issues with your uh, cbd side of it so you kind of took that on what was that process like i mean was that something you you weren't really focused on it because you like the farming side and the the fiber side more if i'm i'm yeah i mean like i said i saw a niche within a niche with my research company and I don't like to do anything subpar. So if we're going to grow, I'm going to try to do the best that I can. That's kind of how the CBD products, you know, I wanted to create the best that I could do. I use CBD every day and that's what continues pushing our CBD product line because I know it's a safe line. I know what's in it. I know people aren't going to get scammed and it's at an affordable price. People can get into CBD and make it cost effective. And that actually works. Like, don't get me wrong. You can go to the gas station and buy CBD for like $10 and then people come to me and they're like, I don't think this works. Well, you bought $10 CBD. Yeah, it probably doesn't you work. <laughs> exactly. And um, probably all the heavy metals and other kinds of stuff that were in it as well. Exactly. And at the same time, I don't 
want to go have to spend $150 for a 30 day supply. You know, most of these people, especially the older community, uh, just generally speaking, they're on pretty limited income budgets. And so they need something that's going to work within their lifestyle and, and what they can do. Yeah. I always wish that my grandma, when I he- heard your mom's story, Nate, that she, my grandma had rheumatoid arthritis and I was always listening. When I listened to her stories, like I wish that I could have given that to my grandma to at least try to maybe have the same quality of life. Cause she was just on a million medications like your mom was talking about and stuff that just weren't really doing anything other than just essentially band-aiding the problem and just kind of masking more than helping in any way. So, yeah. Well, I take it every night before I go to bed. I've noticed a huge increase in recovery. I just feel better. You know, I ask my body to do a lot every day. I'm very, very busy, and I don't take time to you know downtime or anything like that. So I need to be ready to roll in the morning. CBD has helped with that, helped with inflammation. And if you can imagine doing everything that we've done, there's been like a teensy bit of anxiety just because of the unknown. So it really helps kind of keep that under control and help me function to the best of my ability. Your teensy bit of anxiety would probably be debilitating to other people <laughs> <laughs> from the sounds of it, <laughs> from all the, the, the things you've had to navigate and what you've had to do. Yeah, you just take one day at a time. Because if you look at the big picture and what we still mm. need to accomplish. Work the process. Yeah, because the picture can be too big. You know, we have a lot to do and we don't have a lot of time to do it because if this fails, then people aren't going to do it again, or it's going to be a very long time before people want to try again in hemp. So we need to make sure our ducks are in a row. We need to make sure we've got the support and the infrastructure within the industry and it all has to be done like right now. So easy peasy. So ultimately, (laughs) since you're wanting to support local farmers, are you, are you, are your hopes to see more maybe farms opening up or like second generation instead of the kid moving out of the house and going and working at say an office job of staying and starting their own farm and maybe doing hemp or something like that is that kind of a goal of yours or what what ultimately is your your big picture of what you want from the company long term i want people to find their niche for their farm if it's that sixth seventh eighth generation you know being able to continue to keep those doors open great if it's a new person that wants to get into farming also great there's different challenges for each so any support I can provide for either of those, it's going to look different, but I try to do what I can. I want to talk about where your drive comes from. Do you feel like that's like from growing up on a farm or more from like college athletics or how you were raised that, do you have like kind of an answer for that? Or is it just something that you've gained recently or? All the above. Growing up. You know, my sister wouldn't play sorry with me. She wouldn't play basketball with me out in the driveway. Like, if we did, I had to tie one hand behind my back because I didn't really care that she was younger. I was still going to win. You know, like, I don't. It's it's a problem, I think, sometimes. You know, we lived on a farm. We were expected to do chores. I think another thing that really has pushed my work ethic to maybe a different level is my older sister's handicap. She requires 100% care from my parents, you know, or myself when I was growing up I was I was helping take care of her when my parents were at work and so understanding the value of the opportunities that I have I'm not going to take those for granted always pushing to be my best I had some great coaches that helped foster a good competitive environment I had a great weightlifting coach very lucky with the people that I was surrounded by in life to propel my competitive drive in a positive direction I even had my grandparents refuse to play board games with me because I was so competitive. I'm serious. So when she says that, I'm like, I'm right there with you. Yeah. 
college athletics was a great outlet for that as well. But it was definitely my growing up with, you know, our family. I didn't know any different. She was my older sister. I just assumed every every family required that much collaboration and care. I wouldn't change it for anything. I kind of got my eyes opened when I went to college and saw other sibling interactions, etc. You know, because even my best friends and stuff growing up, they, my sister had always been around. Um, I have a younger sister as well. We're very close and... You know, now and stuff, we fought a lot when we lived in school or lived together, but that's because we're kind of similar. But uh, got to college, again, competitiveness, finished with college basketball, really didn't have an outlet for that competitiveness besides at work. And you can, you know, I needed a hobby. Like I said, we had a great weightlifting program in Holton. Brooks Barda was a K-State player, alignment, all-star there. So he was our weights coach. And then Russ Reeder, who used to be the strength and conditioning coach for the Chicago Bears, moved back with his kids when I was in high school. So just the amount of knowledge and focus on form and, you know, just, again, healthy competitiveness in the weight room with a safe environment just fostered all of this. So got done with college basketball, started running half marathons while still lifting every day. Half marathons are for the birds. I was like, wow, this is terrible. I don't know why I'm running 13 miles. (laughs) Um, Got into Tough Mudders after that, but I didn't like that it was not single. Like you needed a team to get through some of the obstacles. And then I found bodybuilding and it was perfect because it required me to increase my mental sharpness along with my physical and required another level of dedication and competitiveness that I hadn't touched before. So... That's how I ended up in bodybuilding. Especially when it comes to the meal pre- meal prep grind. Yeah, but the way I see that is you you have to eat anyway, so why not eat a good decision? And if I'm asking my body to work as hard as I do, why wouldn't I not fuel it with something that is going to help me do that? Don't get me wrong. I love chocolate. I love sweets, you know, all of that. But you got to give yourself the fuel to to do what you're asking it to do. So how do you fit all of that in with everything else you have going on? Again, you have to eat anyway. You know, I I eat to live, not live to eat. So I love protein. I love protein shakes. Like, make it simple, and that's how you're going to be successful. Well, what I mean is, even as far as the training, with along with all of the business things you have going on, I mean, coming here to do this and right. all the social media and the, the radio shows and, and everything they have going on. I consider fitness <clears throat> like a, a meeting that's something I don't cancel on. I do it every day and it's for my mental health. You know, I always feel sharper when I leave the gym. I find that I'm more efficient in the tasks at hands. I sleep better. So to me, it's a non-negotiable for what I complete every day. I just go ahead and put it in my routine. I know that at 830 at night, I'm going to be at the gym till about 930, 945. And then I move on to the next task. Yeah. I can't ever think of a workout that I actually regretted. That I've ever been to and regretted. I mean, I know you can trying to pick up those farmer's carries and you hurt your back. But other than that. It's all right. We learn from it. So, (laughs) But yeah, it's it's something that it's definitely uh, overall. It's a a thing that like when my kids call me in the middle of it, like, hey, you know, are you bleeding or turning blue? Because other than that, this is my me time. Like, let me have my moment. And then, you know, and so they pretty much leave me alone. But, you know, I don't really do spa days. Like, that's not everyone talks about self-care and all these things like. The gym is my self-care. The gym helps keep me sharp, so I don't miss it. So have you competed in that then? Yeah. So I've done over a dozen shows. I've got to compete in Las Vegas, Orlando, Columbus, um, Tennessee, 
Oklahoma City, all over the country. So what's that like? I've never been to one. Like what? What's the process? It's quite the process. Uh, So you diet down to stage lean, which stage lean is not healthy lean. Just putting that out there. If anybody goes and looks at my pictures or anything like that, you cannot sustain that level of leanness. It's it's not good for your hormones. It's not good for your body. Period. So you get that lean. You go ahead and put on your tan. You've got your makeup, suits, all the glitters, all the shine, and then you present yourself on stage and. I think bodybuilding is interesting because it gives you a level of self-confidence because at the end of the day, those judges don't care if you're a good person. They don't care if you're intelligent or anything like that. The only thing that matters is how you present yourself on stage. And while they look at your physique and that is a major factor, so is poise and confidence and just overall stage presence. You can't tell me that that doesn't directly correlate in other areas of your life. You know, you've, you've got to have a good presence. You have to be able to catch that attention in a positive way and present yourself in a way that's going to give you, you know, positive feedback. Do you find it's a pretty open environment with everybody as far as they're supportive of each other? Or is it kind of just since it's a, a single person sport, it's just everybody gets up there and kind of does their own thing? Or how does it work? It's actually one of the best communities that I've ever been a part of because everybody understands the level of dedication and work it took to get that lean and to look like that, particularly at the national and international level that I've showed at, we're all cheering for each other. Yes, we're all going for the same goal, but when it's your time, you'll know it's your time on stage. And I think one thing that is humbling about bodybuilding is at the end of the day, you have to focus on self-improvement because you can look the best you've ever looked and someone else just may look better and they're going to win. And it doesn't discount any of the hard work that you did. It doesn't make any of your dedication less. It's just you weren't better that day. So you have to learn how to process that, cheer for the person that won and know that you need to go back to work and hopefully that next time will be yours. I mean, you got to compete against your best self. That's what I say a lot. Pete, regardless, I use that one a lot. Well, too. You're competing against the person that you were yesterday. And yeah. you're just trying to be just even one step closer to being better that next day. Just one, and whatever it is that you're trying to move towards, I think. Yeah, that's one thing I've noticed. We both do the strongman stuff. And mm-hmm. I've noticed that the community there also is just nothing but supportive for all the athletes. And for me, there's always going to be someone stronger or any, any strongman right. event. There's always going to be someone stronger than you. I mean, you just got to compete against your best self and just keep pushing and keep getting better every day. So I notice at the local level, it can get kind of catty, which cracks me up when girls are mean backstage because I'm like, okay, you being mean doesn't make me look worse. Like you just <laughs> look mean. So I don't understand why you're doing that. You know, the most beautiful thing about strong men, we don't have to worry about stage lean. <laughs> I mean, if you're cutting weight, you gotta. Well, cut you and make do, weight. you do, but I'll never have to worry about ever cutting weight because I'd have to cut like 150 pounds to get down to the next weight level. So it'll always be super heavyweight. Yeah. So I don't have to worry about that as much. But we have been doing meal prepping, which I have to admit, for me personally, with you know a full time job, uh, the things that I do on the backside, this having a family and doing the gym, when it comes around to time to do that, I'm just like, uh. Like, do I really don't want to do fryer. this. Yes. That yes. saves me. The air fryer is amazing. When I didn't work at home or have my office at the house, you know, I had to prep a little bit more, but I just have meat ready to go. Throw in the air fryer. I love shrimp because it takes four minutes. And boom, oh, done. Man, I, could, I would die for some shrimp. Shrimp's so good. <laughs> I love shrimp. I eat like a half pound a day. 
that's a good problem to have. Right. I would love to have that problem. Yeah. But we, well, we, what we ended up doing was, um, you know, he was lazy and had Felicia do it for him. But um, Felicia, Heather, and I, we split it up the whole week and just kind of made, and then we swap. And so that's kind of made it a little bit better because you're not making as much mm-hmm. since everybody's making a little bit. But it's been nice to be able to, especially with my job, I'm, I'm out on the street and I may take a call or I may, you know, the family's already eaten or whatever. And so it, it, I found myself, it's like, well, it's just easy. I'll go to Sonic and grab a burger real quick. It's just simple. It's easy. But it's also expensive. But it's nice to be able to just have something in the fridge, throw it in the microwave, hit dinner plate, hit start, and then boom, now I've got something. Oh, to yeah. Eat. Or tuna packets or protein bars or, you know, whatever. Keep it simple. Yeah, exactly. Well, and Felicia, I think, is down like, what'd she say today? 12 pounds? She even took a notch out of her belt, too. Damn, get it, girl. So, so far, so good. Um, but so when it comes to your competition at the national level, like what's the process to be able to get to that level? Do you have to qual? I'm assuming there's some qualifiers and things you do to get to that? Yep. So you have to compete at a regional level, uh, get first or second in your class, and then you're competitive or allowed to compete at the national level for one year. Is there like an association or something that you have to join and yep. be a part of to do that? It's called the MPC. That's your amateur level. And then the IFBB is your professional level. And then when it comes to the national shows, is there only just like one or is it multiple? Okay. There's seven per year. And those are the only shows that you can go pro at. And depending on the show, you either have to get top five overall. Sometimes it's top three overall. Sometimes you just have to win your class, which you're like, oh, okay, cool. You only have to win your class. For example, in that show last year, there was 1,600 competitors that showed up. Oh my goodness. So. How many total competitors? I don't know. I just keep track of the women. Wow. It's, uh, I mean. But essentially, th- there's eight classes. So you had 1,600 girls show up, and you needed to be in the top eight to get your pro card. Wow. Otherwise, you dieted for fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting way of looking at it. <laughs> there's a, a, a big competition, like local one, for strongman this weekend in Salina. Yeah. There's 75 athletes. So there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a big difference, I, love how I guess. You, for, for those listening, he used air quotes when he did the word big. <laughs> You know, it's crazy. When I first started, I've been doing this for a while because I was a twig coming into this. Just naturally a very lean person, not muscular, more like noodle arms. So it's taken me a long time to put on the muscle that it's taken to be competitive. But yeah, when I first started, if there was two dozen girls in a show, that would be pretty big, you know, and now it's just exploded. I feel like strongman's kind of a lot of these like weight lifting competitions, powerlifting, bodybuilding. I think people are really starting to get into that, and they're gaining traction at a national level. So, That's which amazing. is which is awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I really uh, I really enjoy that. But I, when it comes to that, your style of it, uh, that's just incredible to me. Because as far as the 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 drive and everything that goes into it, for me, it's basically eat a bunch of carbs and show up and lift and let the muscle get bigger and then lift something heavier next time and then heavier next time. And whereas it's really not as it's, it's a process. Don't get me wrong, but with everything you have to go to in the prep and it's all about being balanced. And I think that's the difference is you guys are lifting to get stronger. I'm lifting heavy and doing progressive overload, et cetera. But for instance, my quads naturally are dominating in my legs. So I don't train quads once every two weeks. You know, I need to build my shoulders. You have to match left to right, top to bottom. You need to look basically like an hourglass. Ensuring that you're doing the right combination and the right ratios of lifts is 
very technical. Yeah, and there's there's no book for that really either. I mean, you've no. got to because everybody's body is going to be different on those lifts, and oh, so yeah. you've got to know yourself, and know your body in order. I hire a coach. Do you? Yeah. Um, That's what I was just getting ready to ask. When I got to the point where I wanted to go pro, like again, I, I don't do something just to be average. So I want to go pro. Do I want to be an Instagram fitness model? No, not really. I just want to, for my own satisfaction, to be a professional bikini athlete. I hired a coach that I knew could get me to that level. So we're working together. We focus on our macros. We focus on our lifts. And so I can present myself in the best way possible. Is it somebody Is it somebody local or is it like a online kind of thing? Or? Yeah, my guy's out of Florida. Okay. What's that like? Do you have to film your lifts or like what do you what do you do to through that process? What's that like? No, every Thursday I check in. I send my measurements. I track all my food so he sees the macros that I'm eating every day. He gives me new macros whether he adjusts them, he adjusts my cardio and then he gives me a, a weight protocol to follow. So. And so how how many days a week do you work out? Seven. But I don't have to. Like right now my lifting program is 5 days a week and I have 5 days of cardio. Typically, again, for mental health, I try to do something every day. So I'll break them up and two of those days I'll only do cardio and two of those days I'll only lift. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot in my mind. It just is. Like, just like you brush your teeth or brush your hair, I go to the gym. And thankfully, I have my own gym in my shop. So it helps with oh, time efficiency. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. We just established that you're just more of a badass than me. That's all Whatever. there is to it. <laughs> I heard seven days and I was like, goodness gracious. Well, you know, if it gets too cold, I go into town. I have a membership in town too. Uh, and I lift with this little girl. She's 11. She's totally cool. She's as strong as I am. Like, I want her to do weight competitions in high school. She's so amazing. Watching her transform just in how she thinks about herself, her body, mentally. It's been such a cool process to live with her, lift with her. And golly, she pushes me. She's just as strong as I am. And she recovers faster because she's like 12. Like, she's never, <laughs> no CBD no, needed. she's never tired. And I'm like, you sure you don't want another 30 seconds of rest? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's like you. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. you. I'm like, I'm like, take it easy, man. Slow down. We're, we're not in a race here. We're going to take, <laughs> take a break here real quick. One thing I was that you talked about was initially you had gone to school for physical therapy. But then you talked about taking care of your sister pretty much full-time at home was that kind of what drove you to the physical therapy side of like wanting to help people or wanting to do that or no not really i mean my mom's a nurse my sister's an occupational therapist i have a ton of nurses and nurse practitioners in the family i liked it more from the athlete side i thought i was gonna be able to just work with athletes and what i learned through that internship was i just really hated being inside and People are great, but having to work with them every day was not ideal. So that's where I decided maybe there was another option out there for me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely like my own space as well from time to time. That's why well, it's nice when uh, I go to work. That's definitely a therapeutic time for me because I'm in a patrol car all by myself and I get to go where I want, do what I want, stop the cars I want or don't stop the cars I want. I mean, I still have to take calls and all that good stuff, but it's definitely uh, some therapy time of being able to kind of go and do my own thing and self-motivate. Or if for some reason it's it's been a bad day and or I need some time to kind of relax, I may I can go do that. So it's been it's kind of nice to have that as well. In the past eighteen months, has the public perception of you changed any? Have you felt that in this small community? Uh, and no, uh, you know, because I I personally choose to see the people around me for who they are versus what the media tells me I should believe. 
uh, we had the sheriff and undersheriff a couple of podcasts ago, and we kind of had some of the same conversation. Whenever we've had something go down, like for instance, one of the things I will never forget about the city of Sterling, and one of the one of the many reasons that I'm still there is, we had a a city manager named Taggart Wall that wanted to cut one of our positions to save money because the city manager before him had made some poor decisions and he was just doing his best to try to save some money. Stop the bleed. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it was more of like a toilet bowl swirl oh, that was speeding the, up. Yeah. Um, and so he, the, the community came out in droves and like filled the commission room, wrote letters of basically like, well, That's you amazing. can, yeah, you can figure out a way to do this, but this isn't the way. And then when Chad got shot and the sheriff got shot, there were tons of people. Like, I think Chad said he had like, what, 500 people or something at his house when, when he, he showed got, back up. Mm-hmm. And they had all kinds of benefit dinners. That's like a third and, of the town. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You know, uh, benefit dinners. Um, we even had a firefighter that he had a, a wall fall over on him at Calmaine mm-hmm. there between uh, Great Bend and Chase there. Mm-hmm. And he broke his leg. Well, we ended up escorting him back into town. And there were just like tons of people standing out on the side of the road, like just waving and saying thank you. So I think that there are communities maybe um, where I think law enforcement officers have been stereotypical law enforcement officers that have maybe backed themselves into that corner. I can even see some of it locally in some of our law enforcement agencies where how they handle their policings back them into a little bit of a corner when it comes to people. Mm-hmm. But overall, uh, I, I feel, even though the Gallup poll significantly disagrees with what I feel, <laughs> that, that the public is overall pretty receptive everybody understands that society has rules and if you break those rules you're going to be held accountable for breaking those rules but right now currently as of june june or july of 2020 the confidence in law enforcement's the lowest it's ever been in the history of the gallup poll and it's usually it's usually pretty gallup's pretty accurate out of all of those polls and things that come out but that's on the high or extremely high confidence so it doesn't take into account all those others it just that's just where they just take those two and then kind of average it i guess is what they do i just see a lot of stereotypes in the industries that i work in so that's the only reason i asked well and i think that's just an easy way in of stereotyping and generalizing it's like it's easy it would be easy as me as a law enforcement officer to come into this room and look at you guys and be like you've been selling pot (laughs) yeah you guys exactly i mean i get that question all the time yeah and this is different and and that's like i said that's why i like to see it for who people are and to have these conversations and this is why nate and i wanted to sit down and have conversations with anyone and everyone that would be willing to come in this room and do it because i want to see you for you and what you have to bring to the table and if i can learn from you or if i can help you or if i can establish a relationship with you and it's mutually beneficial or we can help other people that's what we want that's what we're we're looking at and i personally think that as a public servant that's what we should be looking at uh-huh. i serve the public not the government which is actually what i'm getting ready to talk about in our podcast after we're done with you so i won't ruin cool. that awesome but um did you have anything else uh i kind of lost my train of thought i was gonna say something but i'm sorry no you're good well she asked i was just answering i just get long-winded on things <laughs> that's okay so do i it was a good good answer did i have a lot of ums and us and likes that i'm gonna have to edit out later you're gonna have to edit yourself not edit me yeah, you actually, that's the truth. That's the truth. I'm sitting here listening to her going, this is going to be so easy to edit. I'm so happy right now because I usually spend an average of anywhere from four to six hours editing a two-hour podcast of just making things flow better or 
one time we had the heater come on of editing that out. And so it just, it takes time. It takes time. And that's part of the grind. Well, I love what you're doing. I love, again, the education aspect and just connection. Connections are everything. So. I mean, if we can, if we can help one person with this podcast, you know, like you said, if you can change one person's mind, you know, that's what we're after. More than likely, we ask you a question, you have an answer. Someone's going to hear that and it's going to help them. So that's where we're at with it. I think you'll love seeing the growth within yourself. Like, I look back at videos from me a year ago when I got really serious about documenting our social media journey. And I'm like, oh, cringe. <laughs> I look ridiculous <laughs> or what I'm saying. And I'm hoping in a year from now, I look back at how I speak now and say, wow, that's better. Still cringe. I can still be better. So. Well, I do want to say from everything that I've seen on your social media and on your YouTube and everything, you can definitely tell what you're doing is from a love of it. It's not a, and it's a love of agriculture. It's not a love of, I'm going to make this buku millions of billions of dollars and have all this clout. I'll let you know when I get that buku money. Right now it's love. Remember, we've always always loved you. So whenever you get to that stage, we've always loved you more than anyone else. Just remember that. We'll get you all foamed up in this room. You'll be good to go. (laughs) But I just wanted to encourage you and like, just say, keep doing what you're doing and being genuine because from what I saw and, and I'm not into agriculture, but I was genuinely like, whoa, that's cool. And the video you posted, Posted of the the soil erosion with the wind like using that moment and that time to be able to like here's the difference and here's why we do the things we do i never knew what a hell a cover crop was till i heard them talking about it and why i mean and all the things that it does and why you do it and you can hear about why it's good you can hear all the numbers but when you actually see it that's when it it drives that point home yeah well and i think we've I, i battle that same thing when you talk about public perception of law enforcement is So if you were sitting and you guys were sitting in a jury and I'm sitting there and I'm talking about uh, DUI is one of my favorite things to enforce. I really like taking impaired drivers off the road. So if I sit down and I tell you guys like, well, he has distinct and sustained nystagmus at maximum deviation. You guys look at me and you're like, what? (laughs) Right. And so you do that same thing of when when you can get somebody on camera and like I had one guy literally I'm on I'm in the car and I'm driving him to the jail and I'm asking him about his kids. And the guy on video cannot remember his own children's names because he's so impaired. So like, that's the kind of stuff that resonates when you talk about like showing people. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the important part is you can stick up this long lengthy paper with all these numbers that like to a, you know, a biologist of, you know, someone like you, that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm, I, I like those and that makes sense to me, but the showing the people versus just telling them with a bunch of text seems to work a whole lot better. And again, like the sprayer video that I made, the whole reason I made that video is because I had over 40 homeschoolers come out and tour just our farm, learning about agriculture period. They wanted to learn about him, but just agriculture in general. And the moms were like, so how much chemical do you dump on this ground? And while I respect that they are focused on their children's safety, you know, just giving them a healthy environment at that same time. How many people think that we dump chemicals on the ground? So when I'm sitting in front of the sprayer loading, I take five minutes and and I show them that of that thousand gallon tank, 997.5 is water and only 2.5 gallons is actually chemical. And so many people were surprised. They assumed that 997.5 gallons were chemical and you just diluted it with a teensy bit of water, <laughs> you know, and people didn't realize on the granules... I could fit it in my hand, everything that was going into the machine. 
over 67 acres, 67 football fields. And so putting it, finding a way to connect to your audience, whatever that level is, finding it to be something that they can relate to that has helped us grasp and gain more traction and acceptance within the community. Hmm. Even I didn't know that. So I learned something. New. Yeah, no, you just, you have to find something relatable. You know, I had milk jugs sitting in front of me and I'm like, okay, you have a thousand of these. Two of these are going to be chemical. You know, just, you've got to be able to allow them to visualize it, to, to bring it to a level that they can connect with it. Well, and actually, and, and if I'm wrong here, feel free to correct me, but you're actually really not wanting to dump that onto the ground. You're wanting it onto the plant because it's going to affect like either your fur bugs or, you know, funguses or whatever. You know? Right. So if you're doing like a residue herbicide, you're basically creating a barrier at the surface level. So for there, you're going to want to mm. hit the ground Gotcha. because, you know, it's, it's literally like a fence that you're putting up there. That's why you don't want to disturb the soil, soil once you put that on. Because anywhere you disturb that soil, you've broken that barrier and those weeds are going to push through there. And does that include future sprayings and stuff like that? You know, you're really only going to spray a field probably three times within the season. One, you're going to have a pre-emerge or a pre-plant. So you're going to get the clean, field clean before the crop comes up. You're going to have about four weeks after the plant has came up, you're going to have a post-emerge. And then... Generally, somewhere down the line, you're going to have either a fungicide because a disease came in or an insecticide because a pest came in. So you could potentially only go across that field twice in a year, sometimes three. So it's not like you're out there every week just running the sprayer. But you've even had to change some of, of that mindset, I guess, with your hemp versus the some of the things that you spray on your traditional crops versus what you do with your hemp or you just basically do the same thing. There's nothing approved by the EPA right now for approved pesticides in hemp. So you got to be a little creative. You've got to use your cover crops. We've been using cover crops for years, so this is nothing new for us. But getting a good clean seed bed, you know, utilizing planting timing, etc., is so much more critical because you don't have chemicals to fall back on. Right. I would love to see there be an option for hemp, particularly in the fiber and grain side just because this is being used in industrial purposes yeah, versus somebody consuming it. Right. You yeah. know, CBD is a whole different ball game right. and they should be treated differently. And yeah. that's another thing, you know, we've had, we've had the whole legislative bodies come out. Uh, we had the Senate and the house of representatives come out into our facility and we did a presentation for them. Sorry. And so, yeah, no, we did a presentation for them and we're actually going up in January to speak to the general body because the language needs to be changed between CBD and fiber. They should not be treated the same. And thankfully, we're getting some traction there as well. The state fire marshal came out toward our facility. We are a different processor than a CBD extractor. And he, he said that. He's like, why are you operating under the same rules? To me, that's a, a direction and a right direction that we are headed because he's open to those conversations and he's seeing, even with limited knowledge of him, that we're different. So I mean, it's basically a lab versus bale grinders. Exactly. I mean, it's so, glorified hay grinding. Yeah. A lot more expensive, but it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you make it sound like so simple and easy yet again. Yeah. I got a master's and then everything was great. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we just, we just, you know, we just grind some stuff and sell it to some people, you know, and, but it's, uh, I, I have to agree with that. That was one thing that was interesting to me was I didn't, I didn't even realize that, that you guys were basically being looked at through the same microscope as people, you know, like, like the CBD side where I heard them talk about, 
you know, they're, they're really cognizant of like what's in it. Are there heavy metals? Are there residuals of this or the residuals of that? Whereas that's not something that you're worried about, nor not only that, but you're not, it's like, I, I'm not possessing a bunch of THC or even CBD or anything here. It's just basically plant material that I have, we're going to go use for something. And yeah. it's, it's like comparing apples to oranges. Exactly. And anybody that, if you guys see wheat straw that's been baled, that's essentially what these bales are that are coming into us. You know, it's we, hard to tell the difference. Yes. When I saw the pictures and you guys were pointing at it stuff, I was even like, that just looks like the same thing. Exactly. It doesn't look any different. So we like the inconspicuousness of it. I mean, the only thing that's pretty crazy is when you've got 14 foot plants out in the field. That's not that doesn't look like anything else you've ever seen. Well, and then you guys have that trailer loaded up with all those bags. Like, those are cool. That was like the Empire State Building of Wasn't bags. It? Yes. <laughs> we have a 53-foot box trailer that we ship in, but for that order, he wanted more than what could fit in there. We were headed down to Hondo, Texas, and that's about a 16-and-a-half-hour drive. So we were not going to make that in two shots. We were going to figure out how to get all these bags on one. How much did all that weigh? It's probably to be probably not super heavy considering. 18 two. Okay. Yeah, no, you're basically shipping ping pong balls. It's terrible. I mean, that is the most inefficient cost right now for us, for farmers, for manufacturers as a shipping. Because you can vacuum seal it, you can do everything, and it's still like shipping air. Hmm. There's just no density to it. Hmm. Do you have to abide by like all kinds of like DOT regulations and stuff? Has that been an issue that you've had? We just send our COA with everything. Well, I mean, as far as being actively on the road with all of that i don't think so okay i was just curious i mean i just added another layer she could be going home going i mean googling we, like oh no, we have our oh, own no. D- we have our own dot number i, I mean we have our own trucking company and so if it's a load that we're not going to take we'll you know put that to our third party that we that we work with but we haven't had a problem so who who do you use to like ship your stuff we use starwood global and they're basically a broker out of texas and then from there, they've got a list of companies that have either blacklisted hemp or the ones that will work with us, the terminals that it can't go to because maybe the company will take it, but the head person at the terminal won't like it. So I let them be good at what they do and handle our shipping. Man, I imagine that's a load off. It really was. I tried to do it at first, and there was just so much that I had never experienced. And while I do love and I've learned a lot by shipping internationally – you know, cause I do a lot of the legwork prior to, I sent before I send it to the shipping company, but they have so many rules, you know, like when we ship to Hawaii, you know, those are special containers. You can't get any container and they've got to be weatherproof. They've got to be sealed. You got to hit the port at a certain time. Like there's a whole bunch of really nuanced rules that you have to follow that I have no idea about. So I contacted the guy. I said, how do I get this to Hawaii? He told me the steps and away we went. What are they building in Hawaii? Just like houses? Or is mm-hmm. that basically what it's being used for? Yeah. They built a house in Hawaii. With the hempcrete, I mm-hmm. assume? Cool. It was awesome. Are you going to go see it? <laughs> I would, but Hawaii is not a state that I can visit at the moment. So they have lots of rules to get into Hawaii right now. Yeah. Yeah. I say that's that's one that I, I have a buddy that lives there that I play video games with. And it's it's pretty pretty lockdown-ish yeah i mean he was talking about how they like legit restaurants will be like hey let me see your card before they let you in and stuff yeah so we're not gonna get into that because that's just a whole other can of worms but 
Well, it sounds like we at least be on the same page. Pictures. If I'm if I'm yeah. if I'm getting it. <laughs> we were actually discussing that when when you walked in and like he was getting ready to say something because he knew that we were going to get on a long conversation. He was like he just like looks out. He's like, it's we'll super, do this later. Melissa's yeah, here. It's super polarizing, and I hate that. I don't want it to be, and so I just try to. Those are the conversations that he and I love. Yeah. Especially him when he likes to poke buttons on his mom. I love it too, but not on a podcast that's going to go over a platform because I think everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Agreed. And, and that's what we agree with too. Yeah. You either do it or don't. It's up to you. Yep. And you do you. So if uh, if people do want to like reach out and contact you or look you up on social media or whatever, how, how would they do that? Yeah, so you can find us at southbendindustrialhemp.com. That's going to have all the links to our social media sources. It's also going to have all of our contact information, email, text, everything. Uh, but if you don't want to go to southbendindustrialhemp.com, you can find us on Facebook, South Bend Industrial Hemp, Instagram, South Bend Hemp, or my phone number's on our website, and just shoot me a call or text. And don't you have a YouTube page, too? I do. I actually got one of our one of our guys at the facility, our plant manager, he's been helping me get all these videos to YouTube because I don't put them on YouTube ever. I should have, I should have when I started this, I should have been more active with our YouTube channel, but I honestly was like, who's going to watch us? I used it more as a documentation place for us to look back on and we're getting quite the following. So I should have put it on YouTube. (laughs) Have you looked into any of the uh, social media platforms that kind of help tie them all together like hootsuite and stuff like that at all yeah you don't get as good of engagement if you look at your numbers and you look at the analytics of it by posting individually and not cross posting on everything you're going to get better engagement okay so cool i, well, I was just like thinking maybe it could be like a thing that you know kind of like you let the guy handle the shipping you could let the hootsuite handle the social media a little bit and make no, it a little easier a, for you easy copy paste like i'm getting good i can go from linkedin to facebook to instagram no problem um the reason YouTube is so hard is because I just go live. I find, I don't ever prep any video. I don't ever do any editing. Like you, what you see is what you get. Oh. I just go live and start talking. Um, so I don't want to have to download it and then save it to YouTube and then upload it. Well, that's why you have the plant guy help you with that's that. And you're does. good to go. He pulls it. He rips it off Facebook and then transfers it over and puts it on. Cool. I'm thankful for him. Well, I really appreciate you coming out and taking time out of your busy day and everything that you've got going on and, and taking the time to talk with us. It's been really enlightening and I really appreciate it. It's been nice to meet you. Oh, I love it. And you'll have to have the guys back because they, I'm sure, see a whole different view and, you know, we all have different roles within the company. And so. Well, sorry we only had, you know, the two microphones extra. Oh, no, so. you're okay. They totally bailed on me anyway because, <laughs> well, the forklift went down at the facility today and the mechanic was going to be there at 630 and then uh, our cows need water, so. That's where the other one was. Well, I told him, I was like, I'll sit out and you guys can have it. It doesn't matter to me. Like that way you have enough microphones. Oh, they're we'll so eventually funny. Grow. Yeah, they're so funny. So get them down here. Even if you got them down individually or together on the radio show or dynamic. And we just are all so different that I think that's why we work so well together. Also, at the end of the day, I know those guys have my back. They know that no matter how hard things get, because things get hard in the hemp industry or growing a business, period, things get hard. I know that we're going to be able to band together and figure out a solution. So wouldn't want to be in business with anybody else. That's important with your business partners, for sure. <laughs> I, it's, I think, you know, we're, we could grow at a much rapid, much 
quicker pace, but we're very selective on who we bring into our team. You know, we want someone that's going to add value to our team. We don't want just checks, you know, while investors are cool. We want someone that sees the same vision as we do. We want someone that is going to be willing to grind when it's time to grind. I'm trying to remember what podcast I was listening to. There was another one. It was either, I'm I'm pretty sure it was Jocko where they were talking about a guy that. I'm obsessed with him. Yeah, that basically has the ability. They were, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Jocko. Um, But they were basically talking about how they had a way to kind of like screen for that of like who would essentially be what you're looking for in your company. Um, But it wasn't some like fill in the bubble test or Mm -hmm. whatever, but basically talking about how even though the person doesn't show up in a suit and a tie and everything doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to be great for your company and stuff like that. But uh, I have to, if I have, if I find it or whatever it it is, I'll have to send it to. I mean, Dodge is such a great fit for our plant manager. The guys that we have coming on to help him at the plant are just great fits within our team. You know, when I listen to podcasts all the time, I love Ed Milet. I love Jocko. I love Andy Frisella, you know, because from a business aspect and from the people that they bring on with their interviews, I always learn something. And so I like to fill my mind with stuff like that. Did you hear Jocko's latest one with the World War II vet guy? No, I haven't. He's like 98. 98 years old and he had him on the podcast phenomenal listen i'll have to phenomenal listen but uh, i think that's all we all we all listen to the same podcast i think (laughs) my favorite favorite podcast that i've ever listened to was when andy ed milet came on andy forsella's podcast and they talk about the the one-year room the five-year room the 10-year room and basically your competitors in business you know when you're in the five-year you see everybody as a threat and competition you're trying to like stomp people out and when you get to the 20-year room you know the guys. It's a lot smaller group that make it 20 years. And I want to sit in that 20-year room. And actually, the background on my phone is my favorite Andy Fursella quote is, winning is more fun than fun is fun. So that's when you like dig deep yeah. for the, insul- you know, the discipline and what you need. I really think that's applicable in life, business, everything. Winning is more fun than fun is fun. When things get bad, stay calm. When things are good apply pressure and that's how i've always operated my businesses like this is when you got to push and then the last thing i have on my background is i will be sitting in the 20-year room with ed and andy so that's where i'm headed that's where south bend and performance crop research is headed and we're gonna work hard to make it happen yeah hey andy jocko when you guys hear this podcast she wants to be on the show oh i'm gonna tag him i mean (laughs) i love ed mila he answers my dms which i think is insanely cool because at the end of the day, who am I compared to the number of DMs that he gets? So, yeah. Well, also back to your um, good fit for the employees and stuff. When you talk about the public reception in law enforcement, one thing that I've seen that we're doing in law enforcement is, is we're kind of settling on employees. Like you have a heartbeat and a pulse and you can drive a car. <laughs> so that's who we want. You're in. And so uh, definitely. And I saw that when I, cause when I worked in Pratt County Sheriff's office for a little bit, we went with for like a year and a half with a position open because the sheriff would not settle. And we had a phenomenal team. And granted, we had some overtime and stuff as a result being a 24-hour agency. But uh, I think that's a a good thing to have. And just from what I've seen in the business environment, which I know that government's a little bit different because in government, you're not really competing with anyone. Everyone has to come to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, it's, it's been nice to see 
the different management styles that I've had to work under. So what you're doing, I think, is good and keep keep them holding those standards because it'll ultimately benefit you in the end, I believe. It's the same with the alliance that we're building. You know, we understand that we're a small cog in this wheel. So if we can get other processors that are going to be coming online in 2022, if we can get them on the same page or get everyone on the same page so we, again, can rise together. When I tell you that these contracts are coming in, that they're so large, I can't even entertain them because we can't hit the volume. And so if five of us are hitting that volume, this now becomes viable. This industry is now economical to the consumer. Yeah, mutually beneficial. Exactly. And so we just continue to build build links within the industry and good people find good people. And that's what we're focused on. I just want to thank you again for coming on. It was fun. Yep. Thanks for having me. Cool. All right. Well, once again, thank you everybody for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us and spending time with Nate and Melissa and I. And we hope you learned something. Please be give, be sure to give us a rating and a review. If, uh, if it was good, tell us. If it was bad, tell us. We want this to be genuine. And we can't have that if you don't give us good, honest feedback. Uh, be sure to share this with people. And if there's somebody that you think can benefit from this or somebody that can reach out to Melissa and maybe learn something or even wants to start their own processing plan or whatever it is that they want to get done, uh, just you have figured out how to contact her throughout this. And we just appreciate your time and joining us on the podcast today. We'll catch you guys next time.